1: Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment Revealing the Hidden. We study Volume 1 in this Sunday program, and we go chapter by chapter each week, helping you to understand the teachings of the Buddha on the path to enlightenment, so that you can move the mind closer and closer to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're tuning in for the first time or you've been tuning in regularly, because today's topic is so important for you to understand and practice as part of your journey to enlightenment. We're discussing chapter 15, which is titled True Love, Love Without Attachment. This is where you're going to understand how what you've been potentially practicing in your relationships with others have led to all the struggles and difficulties that you've been experiencing. Because craving, desire, attachment, the cause of discontentedness, oftentimes masquerades in our relationships. As love. We think that what we're practicing is love, but what we're actually practicing is craving, desire, attachment. I'm sure there's love in there, but because it's polluted with this craving, desire, attachment, we oftentimes have struggles and difficulties in our relationships and we keep experiencing these over and over and over and over again. And we lack the ability to have fulfilling and sustaining relationships where we can be peaceful and harmonious with all beings around us so the love that we're going to be talking about today when you understand it you'll be able to practice this with everyone life partners children neighbors friends co-workers family members everybody and anybody even somebody you don't even know on the street you can actually love them when you understand what true love is so I'd like to welcome you all and just start with our class of reminding you of the second and the third noble truth in order to understand the topic that i'm going to be sharing with you today it's important to understand the four noble truths as a whole but specifically the second and the third noble truths i need to remind you about these since we covered these way back at the beginning of the program it's important that we discuss these and that you remember them as we move into talking about true love because as you heard The craving, desire, attachment oftentimes masquerades as love, and we think that what we're practicing is actually love, when in reality, it's craving, desire, attachment. So let me be sure that you understand craving, desire, attachment really well before we start talking about true love. So in the Four Noble Truths, this is where the Buddha helps you to hone in and understand what is the problem in the unenlightened mind? what is the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and the path forward to the complete elimination of the problem being discontentedness. So, even though I don't have the First Noble Truth here displaying for you, the First Noble Truth is that all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentedness. Discontentedness is pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Those Pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. Those are pleasant feelings, and they're conditioned on some impermanent situation. And then there's painful feelings, which are the sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, the dislike, the guilt, shame, fear. Feelings like this are all very painful for human beings to experience and then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant you can think about shyness it's not painful it's not pleasant I also put boredom and loneliness here, but some people say that's quite painful for them. So you could put that in the painful category. But one way to think about the neither painful nor pleasant aspect of discontentedness is that if you were sitting on public transportation and somebody came and sat very close to you, it's not painful. It's not pleasant. Maybe you're just kind of uncomfortable. And that's what the mind experiences when it's experiencing that neither painful nor pleasant feeling of discontentedness. So the problem that the undenlighted mind is experiencing is it's experiencing this discontent feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. The second noble truth is explaining to us the cause. What is causing these discontent feelings? Well, discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. Let me explain that and give you some examples based on relationships to help you understand. So discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments. What a craving, desire, attachment is, it's a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. The mind is chasing after the objects of its affection. If it gets what it wants, it will typically experience these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. If it doesn't get what it wants, that mental longing and strong eagerness is in there, that chasing after the objects of its affection, and it doesn't get what it wants, so the mind will typically experience painful feelings of anger and sadness or frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, some of these other painful feelings. And the reason why this is occurring is because of that mental longing and strong eagerness, the craving, desire, attachment, the mind's chasing after the objects of its affection, and it's basing its inner feelings on if it gets the object of its affection, it has these pleasant feelings if it doesn't get the objects of its affection it will typically experience these painful feelings and this is the mind longing wanting things to be permanent it permanently wants to be satisfied it permanently wants to be comfortable it permanently wants the objects of its affection but because of the universal truth of impermanence it's not possible for the mind to experience that permanent acquiring of what it wants for example So let me give you some examples based on relationships. If you've been in a boyfriend girlfriend or life partner situation, when you guys first got together this person was maybe showing you attention, showing affection, you really reveled in that, you really enjoyed that, this new person is taking an interest in you and these pleasant feelings are arising, this happiness, excitement, and elation. But somewhere along the line, the mind started having maybe expectations or cravings or longings, wanting certain things out of this relationship, starting to have expectations and wants. And as long as this person was meeting your expectations, you experienced these pleasant feelings. But then when you weren't getting your expectations met, then you started experiencing these painful feelings in this relationship where there was anger or sadness or frustration because this person wasn't doing or functioning the way you wanted, right? So then maybe at some point the relationship ended. And now when you broke up, the mind is craving for this relationship to be permanent And because it's not permanent, the mind experiences anger, sadness, or frustration, maybe loneliness or boredom. Maybe you're missing this person. This is because the mind is holding on. It's got this longing and strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment. It's clinging to this person, wanting them to be permanent, not realizing and understanding with wisdom the universal truth of impermanence, that this relationship is impermanent. Another example based on relationships is if you've had somebody that has been close to you that has died, for example, and they've moved on, they're no longer in this life as a human being. You might have been sad or frustrated, you might have been grieving or sorryful, you might even have been angry when a person actually dies. The reason why this is occurring is not because of the love. Oftentimes we misunderstand and we think because we love this person, we are grieving or because we love this person, we're sad or because we love this person, we're angry. But what's actually causing the grief and the sorrow when somebody dies is that the mind is craving permanence. You're wanting this relationship to be permanent when it's not. It's impossible for this being to be here permanently because they were born, they had to die every being that's born is going to die this is the cycle of rebirth this is because of the universal truth of impermanence that when there's birth there's going to be sickness aging and death it's unavoidable so when we're experiencing a individual and we're confronted with an individual having died our mind oftentimes becomes very sad and sorrowful and grieving because the mind's holding on I'm sure there's love in there, that there is love for this being, but it's not the love that is causing the grief or the sorrow in this situation. It's the clinging, it's the craving, it's the mental longing and strong eagerness wanting to hold on to this person permanently. And the same reason why we grieve at a funeral is the same reason why some people actually grieve at weddings for example or have sorrowful feelings or anger or other discontent feelings at the time of a wedding because when there's a wedding ceremony this individual is moving on in their life they're no longer residing at home with mom and dad and there's this perception that they're leaving you right they're leaving the bird's nest so to speak and because the parents or the grandparents or the brothers and sisters or holding on to this person in the mind and they're craving permanence for this person to be there permanently, there's oftentimes crying or grieving or sorryfulness at a wedding because the mind is craving permanence. It's trying to hold on to this person permanently, not being comfortable with the universal truth of impermanence. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand, so we don't understand the universal truth of impermanence in the unenlightened state so when this person chooses to move on and chooses to get married or move out of the house or go to college or something like this then oftentimes the people who are at home brothers and sisters parents grandparents things like this are oftentimes sorryful or grieving because this person's choosing to move on because their mind is holding on It's craving permanence. We oftentimes, again, we think that because I love this person, when they go to college, I'm going to grieve and be sad because I love them so much. Or when they get married, I'm crying because I love them so much. But it's actually not love that's causing the grief or the sorrow. It's the craving-desire attachment, craving for this person to be with you permanently. So this is what's causing those painful feelings that we oftentimes attribute to love. It's craving, desire, attachment. It's the mental longing and strong eagerness. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking with you about today is when we get rid of this craving, desire, attachment, and we can see and understand what craving, desire, attachment is versus what true love is. Then you can practice true love and experience this blossoming in your relationships. You can have much more fulfilling relationships, both personally and professionally, because you can practice true love rather than practicing this craving-desire attachment that is masquerading as love. Because in the second noble truth, we understand the cause of the problem is craving, desire, attachment. This is what's causing the mind to be shaken up and experience discontent feelings. It's the third noble truth that explains to us how to eliminate this discontentedness. We eliminate discontentedness by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. Eliminating that aspect of the mind that is longing with a strong eagerness, that's chasing after the objects of its affection, that's trying to hold on and wanting permanence. As long as we allow the mind to continue to do that, then we're going to struggle in our relationships. Because as long as we're craving and yearning and longing for things to be a certain way, not only are we going to grieve at weddings, we're going to grieve when our children go to college, we're going to grieve when there's death but we're also gonna be trying to control our relationships. We're gonna be trying to control our life partner, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our children, our other people around us. We're gonna try to get them to do things our way. Because in the unenlightened state, we perceive that the problem that we're experiencing when we experience painful feelings is we think that it's because people won't do things our way. And if we can just get all these people to do things our way, then we get these pleasant feelings all the time. But it's not possible. This is the mind stuck in a loop. It's stuck in a cycle. It's continuing to chase after these pleasant feelings, thinking that if I can get my children to do things my way, if I can get my partner to do things my way, if I can get my neighbors and other people around me to do things my way, then because they're doing things my way, I'll experience these pleasant feelings. But because of the universal truth of impermanence, you can't get everyone to do things your way. There's 7.5 billion people in the world and it's not possible for you to get everyone to do things your way. So you're gonna to continue to struggle with this craving, desire, attachment, longing and yearning, wanting things to be done your way. When they're not done your way, the mind's gonna experience anger and sadness and frustration. So when we get this misunderstanding of attachment being love, this love which we think is love but is really truly craving, desire, attachment. When we get that out of the way and we start to understand what true love is, then we can actually have fulfilling relationships. So I'm gonna move on and start helping you understand what true love is so that you can see the difference between what craving, desire, attachment is causing these painful feelings and other discontent feelings versus how when we practice true love we can have more fulfilling and more rewarding relationships what true love is is it's having care for another person not wanting anything specific from the relationship other than to see that person be well and peaceful love isn't trying to control our parents or control our partners or children and forcing them to do things our way and us making decisions for other people That's not what true love is. Part of what true love is is understanding that each person is their own individual being and they need to be able to make their own decisions. And by making their own decisions, they feel more fulfilled in their own life. Whereas if we're putting pressure on people to make decisions in the way that we want them to make decisions, this just causes separation. It causes tension in our relationships and then ultimately separation. So we actually end up sabotaging our relationships when we don't understand true love, when we keep practicing this craving-desire attachment, trying to force our opinions and views and trying to control people around us. We're actually sabotaging our relationship and we crush it because a relationship with true love is formed and conducted with no other intentions, other than an interest to see this person succeed in life in whichever way they choose to progress to walk forward. Essentially what we're doing is we're loving people as they are, not trying to change them, not trying to force them to change, not trying to convince them to change, just allowing them to be as they are. Perhaps maybe with this true love we might offer suggestions or encouragement or advice if this person's interested, but we're not forcing it and pushing it and trying to control and put pressure on this person to do things our way. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment there, then the mind's gonna to tend to do those things. It's gonna to tend to put pressure and try to control and try to force people to do things our way rather than offer a suggestion or advice or guidance in any particular situation. So when we can let go and realize that everybody's their own being, everybody needs to make their own decisions and feel comfortable with those decisions, then people can feel more at peace and more at ease when they're around us because we're not trying to force or control other people of what to do. And this can allow us to have more harmony in our relationships because if somebody is functioning in one way, we can love them. We can have a genuine interest in seeing them be well. If they're functioning in another way, we can have a genuine interest in seeing them be well and have this interest in seeing them be peaceful. But when we agree with certain things that they do and in those situations, we love them. But when we disagree with other things that they do, and now we try to control them because we disagree with what they're doing, Now we're putting pressure and tension into the relationship, and this causes difficulties, and we end up sabotaging our relationships without even realizing it. We think that by controlling this person or putting pressure on this person or trying to get them to do things our way, we think that that is actually helping them, when in reality, we're just pushing our way, thinking that we're right and they're wrong, and they should be doing things our way. So it requires the mind to let go. And this is what breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is helping you to do, is train the mind to let go. But of course, it takes time to gradually train the mind to get to that point where it's capable of doing that. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about craving, desire, attachment, about the cause of discontentedness, and what I've shared so far about true love. And as you guys ask questions, you can actually share things that are happening in your relationships, no matter what relationship it is. And we can talk about how to apply true love and how to practice true love. Because it's one thing to understand true love intellectually, but then you need to be able to practice it and apply it to your life. So as you have questions, if you have examples of difficulties or struggles that you're having in your relationships, I can help you with that and help you see how to apply true love. So the way that you ask a question is you put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow up questions directly.
2: Um, Yes, it appears we have questions on um, Zoom, sir. One has been answered while you were teaching. I, Iona asks, when an individual is upset and is grieving because of someone's death, they are upset because of their attachment. They won't get to see that person again, etc. But what about when someone is getting closer to enlightenment? Can they still feel the sad feelings coming on, or does the mind rationalize death differently?
1: If someone's close to enlightenment, they can still experience various discontent feelings. They'll be muted. They won't be as strong, but they'll still experience them. For an enlightened being, if somebody dies that is close to an enlightened being, there's no grief, there's no sadness, there's no sorrow whatsoever because an enlightened being isn't going to have any craving, desire, attachments that are producing discontentedness. So there's Going to be no sorrowfulness. There's going to be no grieving. And that's how you can see very clearly that you can love somebody. And when they die, you can have appreciation and gratitude. You can have memories about the time that you've spent together, but you don't need to experience the grief because if you've ever had someone close to you die with craving, desire, attachment, it feels like somebody's, you know, cut you off at the knees and pulled the carpet out from under you because you're just so shaken up and, you know, so discontent as a result of this person that you are close with that you have craving desire attachment in the relationship that it can feel like you're just almost lost and you've been chopped off at the knees but an enlightened being doesn't have attachment they have deep relationships they have very fulfilling relationships they have lots of love and care and compassion and kindness and closeness in their relationships, but they're just not going to experience the sorrowfulness and the grief because they understand that death is part of life, that because there's birth, there's going to be death. And they understand the universal truth of impermanence very deeply. And it's been soaked into the mind on so many different topics that there's nothing that's going to shake up an enlightened mind, including a death of a parent or a partner or even their child if they got to a point where they were enlightened and they had children even if their child died they wouldn't grieve in that situation because they don't have attachment they just understand that it's part of life that this is what occurs so the enlightened mind is going to not be discontent despite all the things that are going on because everything that's going on around us It's just impermanence, essentially. There's all these impermanent things that are occurring. The reason why the mind has painful feelings is because it's holding on. It doesn't like impermanence. It doesn't want impermanence. It doesn't understand impermanence. But an enlightened mind has been so well trained with the universal truth of impermanence that anything that's happening, they just see that it's impermanence, that this isn't necessarily bad or wrong or... You know i don't need to sit here and grieve about the situation that somebody has died because as soon as somebody's born we already know that they're going to die and as long as we don't allow the mind to hold on and expect them to be permanent then the mind is protected and it won't experience discontentedness but in that situation where you understand that this person is impermanent you can still love and you can have care and you can have compassion and you can help this being and you can do things with this individual and have great enjoyment in your relationship in fact you're going to have more enjoyment in a relationship where you're not attached to somebody. Because if there's attachment, that means that at different times in your relationship that you and or them have been discontent. There might be anger, there might be frustration, there might be hostility, there might be irritation or annoyance in the relationship because you and or them are attached to each other. But when you eliminate that attachment and you're in a relationship with somebody and neither one of you are attached to each other, you can actually have very harmonious relationships where you can have love for each other but there's no discontentedness in the relationship whatsoever. You never argue. You're never upset with each other. You're never frustrated with each other. You're never even irritated or annoyed with each other. That's how deeply trained you can get to the point where your relationships are now completely at ease, completely peaceful and completely harmonious while people are alive. And then when they die, you just understand that that's part of life and that's just the universal truth of impermanence.
2: Yes, sir. Uh, This is a question from Kyla. When you were enlightened, is the feeling of shock eliminated as well? Recently, a friend passed away, and my initial response was shock and not believing it because we had just gone out and seen them. But after that, I reminded myself of impermanence and stopped feeling, stopped most of the painful feelings.
1: Yes, the shock is eliminated as well because you just understand that. When you get word that somebody has passed away, it's just kind of like, well, that makes sense, right? Because everybody's going to need to die at some point. So it's unfortunate when we hear that news, it's like, oh, that's unfortunate. I didn't realize that they were sick or I didn't realize that they were close to death or whatever, you might feel that, oh, that's unfortunate. But there's not going to be shock. There's not going to be any kind of, uh, you know, surprise or discontentedness or anything like that. It's just kind of like, oh, that's unfortunate. It already makes sense to you because the mind is so well-trained with the universal truth of impermanence and an enlightened being has already let go mentally that they're not clinging and expecting this person to be permanent. So when you hear that they're not permanent, you already knew that. So there's no surprise. There's no grief or strong emotions as a result of that.
2: Thank you, sir. doesn't look like there's any more
1: questions. Okay. So let's talk about some different types of relationships and how you can practice true love. Because this first one that I'm going to share with you is, is loving oneself. Now, I've talked in other classes how there is no self. We've talked about the universal truth of non-self, that this self-image and this self-identity in the mind is not who you are as a person. But I'm going to use this word oneself just to refer to this being who you are now. In my case, David or Tony or Miranda or Max or Tonka or Kayla when i say oneself i just mean you right because this english language is kind of unfitting to really explain the true experience that we're having there's not really a way to to refer to david without saying david or myself or you know something along those lines so there's this importance to be sure that you practice love with yourself this being who you are now so whoever you are now whatever this being that we refer to you as you need to cultivate the true love for yourself because oftentimes we have these expectations this is what gets in the way of all of our relationships is that we can have a beginning relationship with somebody but then when we start loading up these expectations of wanting people to be a certain way Then when they meet our expectations, we say, I love you. And then when they stop meeting our expectations, we say, I don't love you anymore. This is actually not love. This is actually selfishness. So what craving, desire, attachment looks like that is masquerading as love is we say, I love you. Therefore, I want you to be with me because you make me happy. This is craving, desire, attachment. I want you to be with me because you make me happy. This is selfishness. This isn't actually love. What true love is, is I love you, therefore I would like to see you be well. And whatever you would like to do to be well, I support you, I encourage you, I just love you as you are. Essentially what true love is, is it's unconditional love. There's no condition that's causing you to fall in love with this person. So because your love is unconditional, you don't fall in love with them and you don't fall out of love with them over here this craving desire attachment that's masquerading is love you can actually fall in love with people or that's at least what we say But what we're really doing is we're falling into craving. We're falling into clinging with people. But we say we fall in love with you. But what we've really done is it's like, okay, well, you've met my expectations. And now that you've met my expectations, I will say that I love you. And then we go through our relationship. Our expectations grow. They don't meet our expectations anymore. And we say, I don't love you anymore. This isn't actually love. This is selfishness. This is craving, desire, attachment. This is sabotaging our relationships because when we put expectations on others to be a certain way, it's impossible for them to permanently meet our expectations of being a certain way. So over here with true love, with all relationships, including ourselves, we can love unconditionally. If somebody chooses one thing or another, then we love them as they are, so we don't fall in love with people, so therefore we can't fall out of love with people. So if you understand what love is, is it's just this interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. And that's what love is. Over here, we think love is, I want to be with you every moment. I need you in my life. I can't survive without you. When you go on holiday or you go on a business trip, I'm missing you and I feel so lonely and I feel so bored when I'm away from you. And I'm thinking about you every single moment that you're gone. This is craving, desire, attachment. What love is, is I would like you to be well. I would like you to be peaceful and you're completely content and completely joyful whether you're with this person or you're away from this person. You can be peaceful and joyful regardless. So when we practice craving, desire, attachment, masquerading as love, we're going to hold on really tightly because we're getting our pleasant feelings when we're with this person. So we're going to hold on to them tightly. So when they're away from us, we're going to experience jealousy we're going to experience that we miss people we're going to feel lonely we're going to have certain things that we want them to do we have certain expectations and we start sabotaging our relationships but over here when we aren't attached to people and we're completely comfortable with them going on a business trip when we're completely comfortable with them going out with other friends without us they don't need to be with us they can go with other people then we're liberated from that craving desire attachment we're not missing them we're not lonely we're not bored we're not longing and yearning for them we're not thinking about what are they doing every second that they're not with me when we're practicing true love we can enjoy the time that we're together but we know that that's impermanent so then when we go away in terms of maybe a business trip or holiday or something we're away from each other But we know that that's impermanent as well. At some point, we will be back together again. So when we understand the universal truth of impermanence and we're not clinging and holding on, wanting this to be permanent, then when we're together, we already understand this is impermanent. And then when we're apart, we understand that that's impermanent too, that we will come back together. And then we can feel completely comfortable of our partner or our children or our parents or whatever, doing whatever they would like to do and make whatever decisions they would like to make. And we can be liberated our relationships because we've eliminated expectations and wants and clinging and holding on to this person. And because we need to love ourselves, we need to do the same thing with ourselves. Because oftentimes what we do is we load up our own mind with all these expectations and all these wants of what we want from ourself. And when we meet those expectations, we feel all this pleasant feelings of happiness and excitement. But if we fall short of those expectations and those wants, then we feel angry and we feel sad and we feel frustrated. We start degrading ourselves, and we have this internal dialogue, this negative self-talk that just degrades the mind more. So it's these craving desire attachments, which also I define as wants and expectations, this mental longing and strong eagerness that is not only sabotaging our relationships with other people, but it's sabotaging our own relationship that we have internally with our own mind. Because when we load up ourselves with all these expectations, again, if we meet them, we get pleasant feelings. But the moment we don't get our to-do list done, or we don't accomplish that thing that we were trying to accomplish, we start looking at ourselves as being bad or a horrible person. We start having this negative internal dialogue, which is really degrading because we're not practicing true love with ourselves. So we need to practice true love with ourselves, where we have goals, we have objectives, we have interests, we have things that we try to accomplish in life. But we realize that we're not going to necessarily accomplish them exactly the way that we've planned out in our mind. Sometimes in certain cultures, we're taught to put together a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan. How could we ever know what we're going to do 20 years from now? How could we ever know what we're going to do five years from now? How could we ever know what we're going to do tomorrow? Right? You might wake up tomorrow and the battery in your car is dead, the tires are flat, and you can't go to work where you thought you were going to go to work. But because of impermanence, you can't even go to work tomorrow, right? So we don't even know necessarily with 100% certainty what we're going to do tomorrow, let alone three years, five years, or 20 years from now. So we have goals. We have objectives. We have interests. We have things that we're working towards. But when we put expectations on ourselves, and it has to be happening exactly this way, then when those expectations aren't met, then we become discontent. So when we transform our relationships with other people and with ourselves, where instead of loading up with all these expectations, that we just understand we have certain goals and objectives that we're working towards, but there's going to be a whole lot of impermanence along the way that we don't even know that is going to occur right now. We know that there's going to be impermanence, but we don't know what that impermanence is going to be. So if we get locked into everything being a certain way in our relationships and with our own life and we lock into these expectations and these wants, we're essentially sabotaging ourselves, sabotaging our relationships. and we're going to crush these relationships because we're going to be pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing for these wants and expectations to occur because we want them to occur exactly the way we have them planned out in our mind. And we're gonna be trying to control our own behavior and conduct and trying to push and keep the nose to the grindstone, so to speak. And we're gonna be pushing and trying to control and force the people around us to get the objects of our affection and get those things that we want and the things that we expect. So we've gotta dial that back and learn how to function in the middle way. Where we're not craving and yearning and longing, wanting, expecting things to be a certain way. But we're also not indifferent and just kind of lackluster and doing nothing in the world and not really pursuing any kind of goals or objectives. So these goals that are objectives and interests are in the middle where we can now work towards things. We can have a goal that in a year from now or three years from now, we would like to do certain things and we would like to accomplish certain things and then just gradually work towards that. But if six months from now, if a year from now, we're not at 100% of our goals and we're only 40 or 50 or 60% there, then we need to be comfortable with that. We need to just understand that each day we're working towards our goals, we're working towards our objectives, but having those expectations and those wants are just going to sabotage what we're doing. and We're just going to be pushing to try to get to this pre-prescribed time marker And we're not going to necessarily be making wise decisions along the way. We might get accomplished what we want to get accomplished, but then it falls apart like a house of cards because we were just pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to control everything around us. Whereas if we took our time and we just gradually worked towards the goal, making wise decisions without craving anger and ignorance, and we were functioning through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Now, even though we're 40 or 50% of our goal at our one year mark, for example. Now it's more sustainable. It's solid. It's got a solid foundation, which we can keep building. So these expectations and wants, these cravings make it look like we're actually having healthy relationships. And we think that that's the love if we try to push other people to do things our way. But it's actually just pushing people away from us because we're trying to force our way onto other people. And not only do we do this with ourself, but we tend to do this with our parents and our caregivers. We have certain expectations of our parents or our caregivers. We have certain wants, we have certain things that we desire from them, that we crave, that we long and we yearn for with our parents and our caregivers. And if they don't meet our expectations, we think that they're either not a good parent or we might think that they don't love us anymore if they don't function the way that we want them to function the way that we expect we feel like because this craving desire attachments aren't getting fulfilled we say they don't love us because they're not doing what we want but in reality we're just being selfish we have these certain wants and expectations and when this person fulfills those we say ah we love them and they love us But when they don't fulfill our wants and expectations, we say, oh, they don't love me anymore, or I don't love them anymore. And this sabotages our relationships with our parents and our caregivers. And what we need to understand is that our parents and caregivers are functioning with a certain amount of wisdom that they're able to function with, certain things that they've learned, certain things that they're offering to us as our parents or our caregivers and we can learn from them and we can grow from them but as soon as we have expectations or wants wanting them to be a certain way once again we're sabotaging our relationships because they're not going to be able to meet our expectations because our expectations are in our own mind and when we try to hold on to those expectations and then cast them onto somebody else and try to get somebody else to fulfill our expectations this is just trying to control that other person, not allowing them to function as their own being and making their own decisions. So we can learn from our parents and caregivers. Our parents and caregivers are going to either going to either do things really, really well and have great wisdom and really support us, encourage us, and help us in our life. Or they might do things that are completely unwholesome and problematic and difficult. But we can learn from both of these situations. Of course, if our parents or caregivers have deep wisdom that they're able to help us and guide us and encourage us in our life, great. But even in situations where our parents are doing a lot of unwholesome things, we can actually learn from that. We can either choose to do those same unwholesome things, which would be unwise, or we can see that they're doing these unwholesome things and choose to do the opposite we can choose to not conform to what they're doing and make wiser choices for ourselves. So our parents and caregivers are always teaching us through their actions. They're either teaching us wholesome things or they're teaching us unwholesome things. And then it's our choice of what we choose to do. Do we choose to do those wholesome things or do we choose to do those unwholesome things? We can learn from both of those situations. But there are situations where Our parents and caregivers are in a situation where they are doing unwholesome things and they don't maybe have the wisdom that they need to guide us. But in that situation, it doesn't mean that they don't love us. It doesn't mean that we can't have care in our relationships. It just means that they're lacking the wisdom to understand how to maybe lead their own life. So therefore, they lack the wisdom of how to help us in our life. So it doesn't mean they don't love us, it just means that they're burdened with their own craving, anger, and ignorance, and unknowing of true reality, and they're struggling and having difficulties in life too. So if you're struggling and having difficulties in life, and your parents are struggling and having difficulties in life, then this is where there can be a lot of problems in relationships. And now that you're learning these teachings, and you are starting to understand how to train your mind and conduct yourself in a better way of life, you might get to a point in your life where you might choose to maybe share some of these teachings with your parents if they're interested in learning. The Buddha shares in his teachings how we can function in terms of our parents because he describes our parents as being our original teachers, and he describes them as having this very special, important role in our life because they're the ones who helped us to attain this life. Our parents and caregivers helped us learn how to brush our teeth, how to put on clothes, how to comb our hair, how to eat, how to urinate, how to defecate, how to do so many different things in this life and to sustain our life. They may have even helped us go to school. They may have helped us do many things to get to the point where we can now function as independent human beings. And he shares this teaching that I'm gonna share with you in some others about how we can kind of repay our parents for this life that we've obtained in this human state. I'll read this to you, it's titled Repaying One's Mother and Father. Monks, there are two persons that cannot be easily repaid. What two? one's mother and father. So I'm going to share this with you and break it down piece by piece. Even if one should carry one's mother on one shoulder and one's father on the other, and while doing so, should have a lifespan of 100 years, live for 100 years, and if one should attend to them by anointing them with balms, by massaging them, bathing them, and rubbing their limbs, and they even void their urine and excrement there, one still would not have done enough for one's parents, nor would one have repaid them. So here what he's talking about is if you carry your mother on one shoulder and your father on another shoulder, and you live for a 100 years, and you massage them and you bathe them and you clean up their urine and their excrement, he's saying, even if you did this, you still haven't repaid your parents for this essentially, this debt of gratitude of helping us sustain our life. Here's the next paragraph. Even if one were to establish one's parents as the supreme lords and rulers over this great earth, abounding in the seven treasures, one still would not have done enough for one's parents, nor would one have repaid them. So even if you establish them as the rulers of the entire earth, And you gave them this amazing amount of treasure. So essentially, all these material possessions. The Buddha is saying, you still haven't done enough for your parents by giving them all these material possessions. For what reason? Because parents are of great help to their children. They bring them up, feed them, and show them the world. So this is your parents helping you to sustain your life from when you were an infant all the way until you were an adult There were parents and caregivers, maybe grandparents, aunts and uncles, that helped you to get to the point where you could sustain yourself and you could be this independent being. So in this situation, the Buddha is saying they helped us so much that even if we did all these wonderful things for them, we still haven't really done enough to pay them back. Not that you need to go out and do all those things, because that would be quite hard to carry your mother and father around on one shoulder. But here's what the Buddha says we should do when we see that our parents are lacking wisdom and other aspects of practice. He says, but monks, if when one's parents lack confidence, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in confidence. What he means by confidence is that when somebody lacks the confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, he's saying, help them gain confidence that these teachings are the true teachings that lead to this better way of life and this enlightenment and this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Well, of course, you're gonna need to learn and practice and build your wisdom to get to a point where you understand and you have confidence yourself. Because if you have doubt about these teachings, you're not really in a place to help other people to build their confidence. So if you ever get to the point where you have confidence and you know with 100% certainty that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind, he's saying, okay, the way to repay your parents is to help them gain this confidence as well. If when one's parents are unwholesome, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in virtuous behavior or moral conduct. So this is a situation if you see your parents are having difficulties and struggling in life, doing unwholesome things, He's saying, okay, you should encourage them, help them to develop this virtuous behavior, this moral conduct, maybe sharing with them some guidance and advice. This is where you need to be really skillful and be very humble because oftentimes our parents aren't really interested in learning from their children. Depending on the relationship you have, they may not be interested in that. So there's skillful ways to be very humble about doing that. The next one is if when one's parents are selfish, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in generosity. So, generosity is what helps eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So, if a parent is selfish and holding on to things really tightly, they're not going to be able to experience liberation. So, helping them to learn how to practice generosity would be beneficial for their life. If when one's parents are unwise, unwise means unwise about these teachings they have ignorance or unknowing of true reality maybe they're not practicing the five precepts or they're practicing wrong view or wrong intention or wrong speech or wrong action or wrong livelihood or these other aspects of the eightfold path if they're not practicing them if they're unwise about these one encourages settles and establishes them in wisdom In such a way, one has done enough for one's parents, repaid them, and done more than enough for them. So essentially, if you're learning about these teachings and your mind's becoming more and more liberated, you're experiencing this better and better and better life. But yet your parents over here who helped you to sustain your life and get to the point where you are today if they're struggling and having difficulties in the world the yeah. buddha saying hey we should repay them by helping them learn some of this wisdom that you're learning and again there's a need to be able to do that in a very humble way oftentimes parents aren't really interested in that but you can actually share aspects of these teachings with your parents or other people around you if you choose without necessarily using the B word, so to speak. You can actually help them learn about things like moral conduct and generosity and wisdom without ever talking about Buddhism or the Buddha or anything like this, you can actually help them to learn, you know, grandma, those racist comments, you know, it's probably not a good idea for you to think that way because you have family members who are interracial. And if you continue to think that way, it's going to hinder you from having good relationships with your family members or you know, other things like this. If you see your parents, they're using drugs and alcohol and there's ways for you to maybe help them. Of course, any kind of help or guidance that you give them, you're going to need to be able to do that without craving, desire, attachment. If you have craving and yearning and longing to rush in there and fix them and have expectations of them, this is going to result in discontentedness for you so the buddha is giving you some understanding here of how you can humbly help them without expectations of them that's where he talks about settling establishing them in these aspects of practice confidence moral conduct generosity and wisdom not forcing them, not controlling them, not putting pressure on them to do these things, but where you see that you can be helpful, then you can share little pieces of information here and there to help them to learn some wisdom and maybe improve various aspects of their life. So we need to learn how to practice true love in order to have a healthy relationship with our parents. If you're struggling in your relationship, with your parents or your caregivers, this is because of craving, desire, attachment from you and or from them. And learning how to love without attachment is going to help you to clear up this relationship where you're not expecting or wanting anything specifically from them. All you're interested in is seeing this person be well and peaceful and that you understand that part of them being well and peaceful is they have to be able to make their own decisions. You can offer guidance, you can offer suggestions, you can offer advice, and if they're interested in hearing that, then you can share it with them. But if they're not interested in hearing it, then, you know, the Buddha's saying, you've done enough, you've attempted, you've tried to establish them in confidence, in moral conduct, in generosity, in wisdom. You've tried to do that, you've worked on that. They're choosing not to understand, so then you can rest assured and you can feel confident that you've done what you need to do to repay them. Because sometimes what we do in life is we try to go around and give our parents all these material possessions thinking that that's what we need to do as children in our relationships with our parents. We put these expectations on ourselves to make money, buy our parents things and this is our way of repaying our parents. But in reality, what the Buddha is saying is actually that's not the way to repay our parents. In fact, if we establish them as rulers over the entire earth and we gave them all this treasure, we haven't repaid them enough. So we don't need to walk down this path of craving, desire, attachment, loading ourselves up and burdening ourselves with the need to acquire all kinds of material possessions to give to our parents. Instead, what we can do is we can offer them wisdom and support and help along the path to enlightenment in ways that we might choose to be skillful about that. But all the while, practicing true love, where we just have this interest in seeing them be well and be peaceful, but understanding that them being well and them being peaceful comes down to their own decisions, that we can't make decisions that result in our parents being well and peaceful. That's not possible for us. We can share guidance with them, we can share wisdom, we can do things to help them, but ultimately they have to decide that they're going to walk towards being well and being peaceful. We can't control them or force them to do that. And then also other relationships that we have are things like life partners. If we have a life partner, then sometimes we sabotage those relationships and we really struggle as well because of the same thing. We put expectations on our life partners to be a certain way. And once again, when they meet our expectations, we feel these pleasant feelings because we're getting our wants fulfilled. And then when they don't meet our expectations or they don't do what we want, then we get angry, we get hostile and we get aggressive with them like an animal, right? That animals function this way, that when you're a lion or a tiger or a bear and animals that around you are doing things that you want, then you're just kind of okay with that. But as soon as these other animals aren't doing what you want, then as a bear or a lion or a tiger, we get aggressive and hostile and we growl. We try to fear them or pressure them into doing things our way. The unenlightened mind is functioning very much like an animal, which we're going to be discussing in chapter 20 when we get to that in the book. But as we function in these relationships with craving desire attachment we're functioning very much like an animal That if we get what we want okay everything's pleasant but when we don't get what we want we get angry and hostile and aggressive in relationships and this puts a lot of tension in our relationships and oftentimes we say things and we do things that are unwise and unwholesome and our relationships end because of this whereas if we learn how to eliminate craving desire attachment in our relationships and we can practice true love with ourselves, with our parents and caregivers, with our life partners, with our children, our neighbors, and everyone else around us, now we can reside in relationships harmoniously because we're not trying to force or control people to be a certain way. We're not putting our expectations on them and we can allow people to make their own decisions and just have this interest in seeing them be well and be peaceful. So this is everything that I have to share with you guys Other than whatever questions you guys have so i'll open up to all the questions that you guys have related to this topic of true love. You can put those into Facebook YouTube or zoom or you can electronically raise your hand in zoom and i'd be pleased to answer any questions you guys might have. Miranda has a question
2: for you, sir. Yes, sir on Facebook intran asks if you try to put your daughter into the shower to clean them up because you want to help them be clean and healthy they don't want to take the shower and try to run away playing helping them is still true love
1: yes you can help them but there's ways to help a child right we need to gradually guide them because they have craving anger and ignorance in their mind because they're so young they're maybe craving to play is what you're saying right they're craving to play they're not interested to go take a shower so they're longing and yearning trying to hold on to this play time and they're not seeing the importance and the wisdom of taking a shower and why that's important and they don't like impermanence right just like other <clears throat> unenlightened beings so what you do understanding this about your children is that you can talk to them and gradually move them towards the shower. So let's just say your child's five or six years old and they're playing and you know that in the next 10 or 15 minutes you'd like them to be in the shower, taking a shower. You can talk to them and say, hey, I see you're playing. It's really important that you take a shower. You know that every night before you go to bed that you take a shower. So mom's gonna give you 10 more minutes or dad's gonna give you 10 more minutes And you continue to play, but then at the end of that 10 minutes, you're going to need to go take a shower. Okay? And they're like, yes, you agree, right? Yep, I agree. Okay, go ahead and enjoy your 10 minutes. So then they play and they play and they play. And then they come back at 10 minutes, say, okay, our 10 minutes up, you're going to follow our agreement, right? It's time to go take a shower. And if they're like, yeah, I'll go take a shower. Or if they're like, no, I'm not going to go take a shower. I want to keep playing sorry you're not able to keep playing you need to stop playing there's going to be more playtime another day but right now we need to go focus on getting a shower and that's what we need to be doing right now so you can talk to your child in these gentle ways and these loving and kind ways in order to help them to let go of this craving to play And because the mind doesn't like impermanence, if you take these real abrupt changes where you're just abruptly switching them from one activity to another, their mind doesn't tend to like that. So you'd like to kind of gradually move them in an opposite direction. So by giving them a heads up of this change that is about to come, when it's time for you to move them to the shower and ask them to go take a shower, they're going to be more likely to be willing to do this because their mind has already had 10 minutes or 15 minutes to be aware that this impermanence is coming. So the more that you understand about how the unenlightened mind functions and you're training your mind through these teachings, you'll actually be able to guide your children in a much better way. and You'll be able to see better results and you won't get the resistance of your child not wanting to take a shower, for example. But yes, helping your child take a a shower, you shouldn't at five years old or eight years old. It's not just like, oh, you do whatever you want. It doesn't matter, right? Children are a bit different. With children being under you know, 12, under 14, 16, things like this, the Buddha talks about our role as parents is to restrain our child from evil. He talks about other things too, but one of the things that he shares is restraining our children from evil, and that's one of our roles as a parent. So in order to restrain our child from evil, when we see that they're making an unwise decision, like not brushing their teeth, or not taking a shower, we need to kindly, politely, respectfully move them towards this better way of brushing their teeth and taking a shower and finding ways to do that. If we're harsh and we're aggressive with them, That's just going to come back to us in unwholesome ways. If we choose to be harsh and aggressive with our children, they're going to be harsh and aggressive with us too because we're teaching them through our actions of how to interact with us. Sometimes we think as parents, I told you to do this, now do it, right? And we just want them to jump and immediately do what we say. But that's not how the unenlightened mind works because it's holding on to this other activity. So by giving them that little transitionary period and talking to them in kind ways, they slowly start to learn that it's wise for them to do things the way that you're asking them in the way that you're guiding them and the way that you're teaching them. So this no expectations that I'm talking about, so far I've been talking about with yourself, with your parents and caregivers, and with life partners. With children, you still shouldn't have an expectation that they're going to take a shower because an expectation or a want is a mental longing and a strong eagerness. This is that longing and yearning of wanting them to take a shower. If you have that in the mind, it's gonna produce unskillful conduct when they're like, nope, I'm not taking a shower, right? So what you do is instead of having a want or an expectation, this mental longing and strong eagerness, is you have this goal, you have this objective that I need this child to take a shower today and I would like them to do that sometime between 8 p.m. and 8.30 or between 8 p.m. and 9 or whatever it is. And you find skillful ways to help them to make that decision more and more on their own, where us as parents, we don't necessarily have to influence it as much. But all children, right, until they're about 10 or 12, are pretty much at the point where, you know, we have to remind them constantly to brush their teeth, to take a shower and things like this, because they haven't quite seen the benefit of taking a shower and brushing their teeth yet. Once they start seeing the benefit around 12 or 13 or 14, they tend to have a propensity to do these things on their own more and more and more without our involvement. So still no expectations with our children. We don't expect them to do anything particular, but we need them to do certain things in order for this household to run and function in a harmonious way. And when we work through our needs, then we tend to not put pressure on our children to do things the way that we want, but we kind of work towards our needs. And this is the way that we rewire the mind by changing the way that we think and the way that we speak with the people around us then we start functioning very differently. When we think about we want our child to take a shower or we expect them to take a shower, that's going to come with a certain forcefulness in our intentions, our speech, and our actions. But when we transform that in the mind and we understand that we have this goal, we have this objective, we have this interest, we have this need for our child to brush your teeth and take a shower. Now we can come from a completely different place through our intentions, our speech and our actions and we can function that way. And we can have much more success because we're not wanting and expecting, forcing and controlling this behavior. Instead, we're encouraging, we're supporting, we're incentivizing, we're skillfully helping to guide our child to wise decision-making. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um,
2: She also asks, if I buy insurance and when I die, my baby will have a fortune, is that love, sir?
1: Just the fact of setting up something that they can have money-wise when you die, this doesn't necessarily mean it's love or or it's not love, right? Because there's some people who aren't able to do that and they still love their child. Uh, This is a way for you to ensure their security and ensure that they have resources when you die. And I'm sure comes from a place of love, right? That you have this interest in seeing them be well and peaceful. But if you have a craving and yearning and longing for it, that you are just saving so much money and you're not tending to your own basic needs and necessities, then this is because of craving, desire, attachment. So it's not just the action of saving money and ensuring they have money when you die that is determining if you love them or not, or if it is love. It's how you function and how you conduct yourself. So you could save money and do it in the middle way where you're saving for them and you have this interest in them being well and peaceful, but you still ensure that you have the things that you need too, and this can be true love, and it's without craving and desire and attachment. But there's also people who save money for their children and do it so obsessively. That it's being done through craving desire attachment there's still love in there but it's being polluted with this craving desire attachment this is where people struggle in our personal professional relationships to understand our love because oftentimes our decisions that are based in love are polluted with craving, desire, attachment, our own selfish desires. So just look at what you're doing and be sure that you're doing it in the middle way that maybe if you're choosing to put some money away or have some insurance for your child upon your death, be sure that you're not doing that and struggling and having difficulties yourself with the basic necessities you need to sustain life because you're choosing to do those things. So it's not the action of saving money that determines whether it's love or not. It's how you actually do it, whether it's with craving, desire, attachment, or it's not.
2: Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no more questions on Facebook and YouTube right
1: now. Uh, Max has
2: a problem. Uh, question, sir? Sort of a question, sir? Uh, yes, I had a question about the uh, there's the teachings about the, uh, snake that smears the feces, um, excuse the background, noise. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, uh, associating with friends, loved ones, etc., that may, uh, smear you with feces or
0: whatnot.
1: Yeah, so this is the Buddhist teachings on choosing wholesome friends and companions and comrades to be part of your life. What he's sharing in that teaching is that there's this snake that may not bite you, but it may smear you with feces. And this is a aspect of practice that is very wise to ensure that you're choosing to associate with wholesome individuals. So in order to do that, Understanding things like the five precepts are really, really helpful. Because if you have friends that are not practicing the five precepts, for example, then their decisions to kill or steal or have sexual misconduct or lie or take substances that cause heedlessness, that's their decisions. But your decision to associate with them now is going to affect you. And this is how the snake can smear you With feces. And in order to choose people to associate with, you shouldn't be doing that in a judgmental way where you're looking down on people or you're looking up to people. But instead, you're just making wise decisions, which is called discernment. Judgment is putting yourself above or below people and trying to determine what is wholesome and unwholesome for others and essentially judging whether they're wholesome or unwholesome. Discernment is making wise decisions about who you choose to associate with, or what you choose to do in life. This is just wise decision making. So we can make wise decisions of who to associate with and who not to based on something like the five precepts without actually judging somebody. Because in a situation where someone smears you with feces of what the Buddha is describing, an example I can give you with this is, let's just say you have a certain friend from childhood, maybe now you're 30 or 40 years old, And you've always known that this friend is a drug dealer for example and they sell cocaine and heroin and crystal meth but because you guys were friends as children you've just been clinging and holding on to this relationship and you just spend time with them because they've always been a friend of yours and you haven't let go yet even though they're into these unwholesome things of selling drugs well let's just say you're driving down the road And a police pulls you over for speeding when you're not looking, the friend drops some cocaine or crystal meth under your chair. If the police find that and it's under your chair, who's going to jail? You're going to jail, right? You didn't do the choosing of having these drugs under your seat, but you chose to associate with somebody who is into unwholesome things. And this is what the Buddha is explaining about how the snake can smear you with feces. So in this situation, your choice to associate with unwholesome people is going to affect you. So you can practice true love and choose to not be involved with somebody like that, not because you're judging them, but just because you know it's unwise. And there's other situations like this, whereas if you see somebody constantly lying, then you know that it would be unwise for you to associate with people who are constantly lying because they're not trustworthy, they're not dependable. You can't rely on them in certain situations. Not because we expect or want anything specific from them, but any kind of healthy relationship is gonna need politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. And if somebody's choosing to constantly lie to you, then that politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect isn't there. And by you choosing to associate with people who are constantly lying, for example, then you're going to incur the harm because of your choice to associate with somebody like that. So this is where you need to have love for yourself and realize that choosing to be around certain people if they're into unwholesome things it's going to affect you so the buddha talks at multiple points in his teachings that it would be wise to choose to associate with wholesome individuals and having wholesome people in your life and this is going to help you to move closer to enlightenment because if you're associating with a lot of unwholesomeness then your mind's gonna have a tendency to do those things. Where if you associate with people that are into wholesome things, then your mind's gonna tend to move in that direction towards enlightenment.
2: Thank you, sir, for that in-depth teaching. You're welcome. Miranda has a question, sir. Thank you, Tony. I have a few questions, actually. Um, The first being, We shouldn't have expectations in a relationship, in any relationship, but specifically a relationship with a life partner or potential life partner. But then there are certain things, um, someone who is verbally, mentally, emotionally, or physically abusive, someone who becomes involved in drugs, which you just touched on there, these type of things. Are these expectations or are these just something that we see as maybe objectives, goals, or interests to not have a relationship where these things are involved, sir?
1: Yes, that's the way that I would approach it, is that understanding that you need for any healthy relationship, politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect, and where somebody starts to be physically or sexually or verbally or mentally abusive in their conduct, then by loving oneself, you'll understand that this isn't a good relationship for me and I should make some decisions here to improve this situation. Whether it's helping them to get help, if they're willing to get help, or it might mean that you need to leave the relationship. And by you loving yourself and realizing that cultivating healthy relationships is what's gonna help you in this life, then when you're in a situation where you see this abuse starting to occur you can make wise decisions that lead to improvement of that so not having the expectation or the want that mental longing and strong eagerness but having the need and understanding that this is what's needed for a healthy relationship in a successful relationship
2: thank you sir and then is true love for all beings is there a difference in the love we would feel from a life partner to a child or a sibling or a stranger, we meet on the street. And then how is there a way to explain the difference between love of all beings versus love of a life partner? Because when I've tried to explain this before, I was met with anger from the other person, which was due to their own, craving, desire, attachment. But is there a wise, skillful way to explain this um, to someone who may have a bit of jealousy or craving to be someone's top priority in the mind, sir?
1: Okay, so there's there's a couple things to discuss there. If we're practicing true love, then we love all beings equally. Because remember, what love is, is this interest in seeing beings be well and be peaceful. So we would like our life partner to be well and peaceful. We would like our children to be well and peaceful. We would like our neighbors to be well and peaceful. We would like our coworkers, even this person we don't know walking down the street, we would like them to be well and peaceful. And we cultivate that and we practice that, that we have this interest in seeing all beings be well and peaceful. So this is what true love is. But there are certain people, like a life partner where you might have intimacy in the relationship, where the roles are different. You know, that stranger on the street or somebody that you don't know, you're not having an intimate relationship with them. You love them. You would like to see them be well and peaceful, but you're not having an intimate relationship with them. Your life partner, you would like them to be well and peaceful. So the love is the same, but the way that you function in the relationship is different because of the different role that we fulfill in a certain relationship. So this is the difference between the two is our role is different between our children, our parents, our life partner, some individual that we see on the street. Our role is gonna be different, but the love of having an interest in seeing this being be well is different. So like Bailan, if he's sick, I'm gonna take him to the hospital and be sure he gets what he needs at the hospital. But if my neighbor is sick, I love them. I'd like them to be well and peaceful, but my role isn't to take them to the hospital. They have family and friends did do that. But if they came to me and they said, David, I need you to take me to the hospital. My family is not here and I'm the only one home. Can you take me to the hospital? Sure, I'll take you to the hospital. Let's go, right? Because I'm interested in them being well and peaceful. But that isn't my role, right? I'm not going to pay for their hospital bill because that's not my role to do that. But with Bailan or maybe Sarah, Our family money needs to be sure that we take care of our medical bills, for example. So we need to understand that this love is having an interest in seeing all beings be well and peaceful, but then we're gonna have these different roles and different relationships. Then as it comes to life partners and certain relationships that we have, as you start to understand true love more and more and you practice true love more and more, If you're around people, which I'm sure all of you are, that aren't practicing these teachings, they're going to be looking at love in one way and you're gonna be looking at love in a different way. This is the class that I'm gonna be teaching towards the end of the year on functioning in a world with non-practitioners, how to kind of exist in a world where you're looking at the world in one way and other people are looking at the world in another way. It's very helpful, particularly with life partners, if you have a partner that is learning and practicing the same teachings as you. Because if you're practicing true love and they're also practicing true love, you guys are going to understand each other and you can work with each other in order to gradually move your relationship closer and closer to functioning through these teachings and understanding the natural laws of existence and the natural law of gamma, true love, understanding, craving, desire, attachment and all these other teachings, you guys will be able to find harmony in a much easier way than if one person was practicing these teachings and one person isn't. The reason why is because the way that a non-practitioner is going to look at love is they're going to look at love as craving, desire, attachment. They're going to be longing and yearning and holding on to you. So in a situation where, say, a person is in a relationship with a life partner, if there's craving, desire, attachment in that relationship, one person is practicing true love, the other person isn't, Now, when you come home and the person says, hey, did you miss me? And you're like, no, I didn't miss you at all. They're like, what? You didn't miss me? No, I didn't miss you at all. (laughs) They're gonna think of that as you don't love them because you didn't miss them because they don't understand true love. Or if they were away on a business trip and they say, "You know, were you lonely without me? And you're like, no, I was completely fine without you. They might look at that as you don't love them. Or if you're interested in going off with, Another man or another female and having lunch together or having dinner together, they might have that jealousy because they're trying to hold on to you and they are not comfortable with you going out to lunch or going out to dinner with somebody that is maybe in their mind a competition for them and they're lacking trust. And because of their craving, desire, attachment and holding on to you, they're feeling like you might leave them. And this presents a problem for them of you going out and having food with somebody else. But if both people are practicing true love, they should be just as comfortable with you going out with your mother for lunch or dinner as they would with anybody else because they're secure in their relationship with you. They know that they're making wholesome decisions, that you love them and they love you. You're practicing true love. You're not trying to control each other. You're not going to be having extramarital affairs or relationships outside of your relationship in terms of intimacy. And if you both partners are practicing these teachings uh, similarly, then they would be very comfortable with you going out with anybody and anybody because they're secure in the way that they're functioning as a human being in your relationship. But if they're insecure, and they know that they're making a lot of unwise decisions in the relationship, then when you choose to do other things that they don't agree with, they're going to be jealous and they're going to have resentment and it's going to be a struggle in the relationship. So having a life partner that's practicing these similar teachings is very helpful to the relationship because you're both coming from a similar thought process of not having craving, desire, attachment, and that is not love, but instead practicing true love and allowing each other to make your own decisions. And you'll practice generosity with each other. You'll practice loving kindness with each other. You'll practice wisdom with each other, and you'll be able to have a very loving and sustaining relationship without any discontentedness whatsoever. And if you guys have worked together to get to that point where there isn't any arguing and there isn't any hostility, there isn't any bitterness or jealousy or resentment in the relationship, and you've worked on that together as a couple to get to that point You will appreciate that relationship so much that neither one of you are interested in doing anything that's going to sabotage this relationship, and you will then have really worked to obtain something for yourselves that is permanent. You'll have this unconditional love that is permanent because it's unconditional, that there's no condition that's creating the love in your mind, there's no condition that can eliminate the love in your mind. So your partner might choose to do something you disagree with, but you can still love them even though they do something that you disagree with. And this is where you can get to unconditional love and your love can be permanent and there's no hostility and you guys can both live in complete harmony and peace for the rest of your lives together you yes, sir that kind
2: of leads into the other question that i had but that may need to be discussed as you said in the later class which is many of us in in your classes we live in places where there are not many buddhist practitioners people aren't learning and understanding these teachings how would they go about finding a life partner in that situation sir
1: Yeah. So what I would suggest is that you're going to understand these natural laws of existence through the Buddha's teachings. Other people might have learned some of these teachings through other traditions. So a person who's learning Buddhism and who's practicing Christianity can actually live and live a harmonious life together if they've learned some of the same things, depending on how deeply they've learned the true Christian teachings as Jesus Christ taught them, depending on the teachers that they learned them from and how they practice them. There can be these same teachings of like what we would call the five precepts, they show up in other traditions as well. Things like right view, where we accept responsibility for our own feelings and our own thoughts and our own decisions. That's where we understand it as we call it right view. Well, someone who's Christian or Muslim or Hindu can have what we might consider right view where they understand that they're causing their own discontent feelings, they accept responsibility for their feelings and so forth, but they just maybe didn't learn them through Buddhist teachings. So if you're in a beginning of a relationship or you're looking to have a relationship with somebody and they're blaming you for the feelings that they're having that's like a big red flag that you're either going to have to help them learn that you're not causing their discontent feelings, or you guys are going to really struggle in relationship because they're going to constantly be blaming you for their anger and their sadness and their frustration. And you know, you didn't cause it, but yet they keep blaming you for it. So as you learn this path more and more, you can see certain qualities of mind that someone can be practicing these teachings without having ever learned the Buddhist teachings. So for example, my grandmother, she's recently in the last couple of years, she's read some of my books, but before that she's never read anything about Buddhism. She didn't even know what a Buddha is when I first started talking to her about Buddhism. But all growing up throughout our years, she knew that any feelings that she was experiencing, she was causing it herself. She accepted responsibility for her own emotions. She chose not to argue with people. She didn't argue. She chose to not kill, to not steal, to not have sexual misconduct, to not lie, to not take substances that cause heedlessness. So she learned these teachings on her own through her own ways and her own mentors. And even I helped her along the way in certain Things and help teach her a few things. But even without deeply understanding the Buddhist teachings as the Buddha taught them, she had wisdom on board that helped her to understand the natural laws of existence, for example. So there are people like that that are out there. And I would say if you're interested in a partner, the more that you learn about these teachings, you actually be better at selecting somebody who would be able to have a very healthy relationship with you. Because before we understand these teachings, we lack the wisdom for our own life of how to function through these teachings. So therefore, when we choose a partner, we might not be looking at the right things we might have lacked certain wisdom and chose a certain partner in the past that now with this new wisdom that we have, we might not have chosen that same partner. So if you're looking to have a partner, I would suggest that you look for somebody who's accepting responsibility for their own feelings, that you look for somebody who's practicing right intention, right? That's practicing right speech, that's practicing right action in the way that you know through the wisdom of the buddha they might not have learned it that way but you can at least look at how they function in the world do they treat you polite kind friendly and respectful do they treat their mom polite kind friendly respectful do they treat the cab driver and the waiter and the waitress and the cleaner at the hotel with politeness kindness friendliness and respect because if they're disrespectful and degrading to other people it's only a matter of time before they do that with you too so you can observe people's practice not in a judgmental way but just observing how people interact with others and choose to decide who are you going to include in your life as a life partner because this is a very significant role in your life if you are running a fortune 500 company you're going to choose a ceo or a COO, or directors, or vice presidents. You're going to be sure they have certain qualifications and skills because you would like to make sure they run this company very well. Well, in terms of the team that you're putting together for your life, your life partner is a very significant role. And if you make a unwise decision about that individual, it can result in all kinds of difficulties and struggles in your life now and for long into the future. So, it's very wise to take your time and observe this individual in multiple different settings and how they interact with people. And then observe with discernment wise decision making through the Eightfold Path and through the things like the five precepts, because you know if they're making unwise decisions, it's going to affect them and because your choice is to be with them as a life partner, it's going to affect you, too. So if they're gambling, or they're lying, or they're stealing, or they're treating people in harsh and aggressive ways, if they speak in degrading ways to people, if they're gossiping and slandering people, if they're aggressive and hostile in any way through their intentions, their speech, or their actions, you know that they're going to be that way with you at some point. So while you might not have had this wisdom in the past to make a decision about your life partner, you have that wisdom now and you can gain more and more of that wisdom. And then if you ever choose to have a life partner, you might choose to look in places like meditation centers or Buddhist temples or retreats and things that you go to where people are into improving themselves, even though we know there's no self there, but they're into doing wholesome things. They're interested in doing wholesome things. Whereas if you used to hang out in bars and nightclubs and things like this, and you met somebody there, this is a different type of individual. Not that they're necessarily bad or immoral or anything like this, but an individual who's hanging out regularly at a bar is into very different things than somebody who's going to meditation retreats on a regular basis. And I would encourage somebody who's learning and practicing these teachings and aspiring to get to enlightenment to choose somebody who's interested in improving themselves and doing that inner work to improve themselves because they know that they're not perfect. They know that this life is a journey. They understand that by bringing more wisdom on board, it's going to help them in this life and any partner that they would like to be with. If you guys are into that same kind of inner improvement, that inner development, then you guys will probably connect in a really wonderful way and have lots of great conversations with each other versus if you were with somebody who is taking substances that cause heedlessness or into sexual misconduct or into stealing and lying and things like this, this isn't going to go over very well for somebody who's trying to get to enlightenment. Someone isn't going to choose a partner like that. Or if you see that this potential person has a very difficult relationship with their mother and their father and their brothers and their sisters, then you know that they're struggling and they're having difficulties in relationships with people that are close to them, so they haven't quite learned the wisdom of how to have a relationship with their mother, their father, their brothers and sisters. So they're going to also struggle in having a relationship with you too because they haven't yet learned how to have a peaceful and harmonious relationship with people close to them. So you can look at these kind of things, again, not in a judgmental way, but just as an observation of how does this person function in the world? What kind of wisdom do they have on board? How do they interact with food servers, with taxi drivers, with that customer service representative at the airline, at the grocery store. How do they treat the cashier? And when you observe how these things are happening, if you like what you're seeing over multiple experiences with them, then you can start building your confidence that this person tends to treat others in a very wholesome way and you can have confidence that they're going to treat you that way too. So by taking your time, not having craving to acquire a partner and knowing that it's a journey and you can just gradually be patient and take your time, then you can observe them in a lot of different settings and make wise choices about who you choose to involve in your life. Yes.
2: Thank you, sir.
1: You're welcome. Max has a question. Yes, sir. I had, uh, so kind of, uh, since we're,
2: it's a close topic, I guess, uh, discussing how to uh, calmly end relationships that are unwise to continue.
1: Sure. This was going to come down to what type of relationship it is. If it's a friend, somebody who's just a, a friend the best way to do that is just kind of gradually move on and just kind of gradually, you know, let it drift away. We don't need to confront the person and say, I can no longer be your friend anymore because you yelled at me and you're harsh and you you lied to me three, five times. You know, this is just gonna erupt into arguments and create conflict and all this kind of thing. It's better to just kind of gradually drift away. Whereas if they call you, you know, Uh, every couple of days, maybe don't answer their phone calls a few times and then talk to them uh, later. And then, uh, you know, where you would maybe typically talk to them three or four times a week, maybe start making it twice a week or once a week and just kind of gradually move on. And that allows them to gradually move on rather than having conflict. In a situation where it's a boyfriend and girlfriend, where you are not cohabitating together, you can essentially do something similar where you can just kind of gradually drift away from each other. Uh, depending on how serious the relationship is, if it's just dating, you can just gradually drift away. But if it's a more serious relationship where there's intimate relationship and things like that you might need to talk and discuss and help them understand that you're going to choose to move on and do other things and so forth and so on but before you get to that point it would be wise to kind of gradually stop spending so much time with them so that their mind kind of gets adjusted to the impermanence because they're not going to like that impermanence of the relationship ending so when you confront the relationship and you come to an abrupt end People don't like that impermanence, and this is where people can turn into stalkers and things like this, whereas if you kind of gradually let it drift away, then there's a tendency for that to not occur. Where there's a husband or wife or you know, some kind of more substantial relationship where you're living together and you're choosing that you need to maybe divorce or sever permanently, the best thing to do in those situations is again, to do that gradually and slowly. Of course, attempt to resolve whatever difficulties that are in the relationship, but ultimately, if they're unresolvable, then continuing to hold on in the relationship is only gonna just cause discontentedness. Oftentimes, we hold on in marriages, for example, because we've been taught that there's only one marriage and if you get a divorce, you're a bad person. But this isn't true right? In some communities, if you get a divorce, you know, in the old days, they would kind of shun you, so to speak, where nowadays people have kind of understood that divorce is part of life, that even though I made a decision five years ago or 10 years ago, maybe it's turning out to not be the best decision today. And with this more wisdom that we have about these teachings, we might decide that it's wise for us to move on from this relationship. And you'd like to do that in as comfortable as a way as possible. So if you can gradually start spending time in other places, you know, you don't necessarily spend as much time with each other. And again, you've already tried to work this out and you realize that it's not going to work out. So you maybe start spending time away from each other. You start gradually creating a life outside of this relationship uh, with each other. And then ultimately, of course, with a more substantial relationship with a marriage, you're going to need to in the relationship and if you can do that without lawyers and i'm gonna get you and i'm gonna win and all these kind of things this is typically how some cultures do it is each side lawyers up spends all this money and then they fight and see who can win where if you can have a discussion with your partner in multiple discussions to realize that okay we made some decisions in the past we've benefited and gained whatever wisdom we've had in this relationship, just because we're choosing to end the relationship doesn't mean we're bad people. It just isn't working. And rather than you win and I lose, or I win and you lose, let's figure out a way that we can both win in this situation. Rather than lawyering up and spending all this money and fighting it out in court, where both people end up losing, truly, instead, Let's kind of figure out a way that we can both win here and let's do this amicably. Let's be kind and gentle and and loving about how we do this, especially if there's children involved, because the children are going to need both parents and there's no reason to inject a lot of hatred and anger into this relationship, even though it hasn't worked out. That doesn't mean we have to be hateful and vindictive with each other. I got a divorce. I still love my ex-wife, love meaning I am interested in her being well and peaceful. I've had very significant girlfriend relationships. I had a girlfriend that lasted for eight years prior to my first marriage, but we ultimately ended and I still love her. I'm still interested in seeing her be well and peaceful. I learned a lot in each one of the relationships that I was ever in. So we don't have to end relationships in an aggressive and hostile way and one person wins and one person loses. If we practice true love, where we're interested in seeing all beings be well, then we can kind of come together, perhaps in ways that we weren't able to in the past and figure out a peaceful way to bring this relationship to a close where both people end up whole. And if that means that we live with each other for a while, we save up money and one person moves out while the other person stays with the kids or what have you or whatever the mix ends up being, just figure out a way that both people can win. All people can win, including the children, if children are involved, because the cost of losing in a relationship that's been very significant, particularly if there's kids involved. The cost of losing is not just the monetary cost, it's the emotional cost as well. And putting each other through that is very unfortunate when these kind of situations happen. You know, it can really wreck people's lives. So if you can figure out a way in situations where you're in a very significant relationship and there's lots of money or there's not lots of money, there's possessions or there's children or there's Uh, different things that you guys are connected to, learning how to separate your lives and walk away where you're both whole, so to speak. This would be very helpful so that you guys can maintain a love for each other, where you have this interest in seeing each other be well and peaceful. And having multiple conversations about that before any decisions are made is really helpful, where you don't feel like you have to rush out and hurry up and get a lawyer and one person wins and one person loses but instead let's just take this slow let's talk about this let's discuss it let's figure out about how we can best both walk forward in life yes in different directions we're no longer going to be together but let's figure out what is going to help person a walk forward in a wholesome way and be whole at the end of this and person b walk forward out of this relationship and be whole as well rather than doing damage to each other, either financially or emotionally. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tony. You're welcome, Max. Uh, There's no more questions, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Well, I'll just thank all of you guys for attending today's class and encourage you to look at this chapter, read this chapter, ask questions about this chapter, because there's a lot of details in the chapter that don't necessarily get brought into the class, and there's certain things in the class that I don't discuss in the chapter. There's also other classes that I taught on this topic. So if you find that you struggle in relationships, whether it's with your parents or your children, life partners, other relationships, you might be interested to look at other classes that I taught on this. Even before today, I watched the class that I taught last time, it was in January. And that class was very different than the way that I'm teaching this class today. It's the same topic, but I'm teaching it in different ways. So if you find that you struggle with this practice of true love in relationships, I would encourage you this week to go back and look at some of the other classes, even though there's this class, don't feel like this is it. Because learning about true love intellectually, it takes, you know, just about 30 minutes to an hour for me to explain to you what true love is. But the practice of true love is going to take you many months and maybe even years to really master in your relationships. And the more wisdom, the more learning you have done in order to understand what true love is, it will prepare you to practice it better and better. So I would encourage anybody who's having difficulties in relationships and practicing true love, to go back and look at the class that I taught in January on this, and maybe even the ones before that. But I feel the one that I taught in January was really quite thorough, and there was a lot of questions in that class that really brought out a lot of teachings that I think will really help you if you're interested in this topic and you're challenged in this topic. Because otherwise, if you don't get the wisdom of how to practice true love, you're just gonna be in this cycle. Where you are making decisions about certain relationships that you're in, the relationship starts, it's going good for a while, and then you struggle, have difficulties, and the relationship ends. And what we tend to do is we tend to push people away thinking that that's gonna solve the problem. When we experience these painful feelings, we oftentimes in the unenlightened state, we attribute those painful feelings to the other person, and we think that pushing them out of our life is gonna solve the problem, but it really doesn't because you're still lacking the wisdom of how to practice true love. Because if you're experiencing any painful feelings in any relationships that you're experiencing and having, then you haven't figured out how to have relationships without attachment. You haven't figured out how to love without attachment. So if your life partner in your relationship, if you get annoyed or you're frustrated or you argue, or if with your children if you argue sometimes or you have frustration or annoyance in your relationships or with your parents or with other people in your life that means you still have craving desire attachment in your relationships you still haven't figured out how to love without attachment and that's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're a horrible person. It's just because right now that the mind lacks wisdom of what true love is and how to practice it on a regular, ongoing, consistent basis. So, the more wisdom that you get by reading and watching other classes that I've taught on this topic, by asking questions in the Facebook group, sending me a private message, asking questions in these online classes, and reaching out for personal guidance and discussing some of the challenges you're having in your individual relationships, then in that personal way, in that private discussion, I can help you apply these teachings more readily and help you see how to have love without attachment, even with ex-partners, ex-wives, ex-husbands, ex-boyfriends or girlfriends. If you're still having a relationship because there's children involved, and you're having difficulties having relationship where there's peacefulness in the relationship, I can help you on a one-on-one basis in private discussions. You can share with me what's happening in your relationships, and I can share teachings with you that will help you to develop the ability to practice true love more and more, where you just have an interest in seeing this person be well, and you can eliminate any attachments that you have, so that now you can have harmonious relationships it takes real work. This is one of the topics that household practitioners tend to really struggle with. There are some people in the world that will tell you that you can't be enlightened and love other people at the same time. This is actually false. It's not true. Those people aren't understanding what craving, desire, attachment is, and that what they're thinking love is, is actually craving, desire, attachment. As household practitioners, we have many different relationships. As an ordained practitioner, they don't have the same type of relationships that we have, so they tend to not necessarily be involved in uh, relationships with true love necessarily. There, of course, they don't have boyfriends, girlfriends, life partners, things like this. Even if they have children before ordaining, their children are like not their children anymore. Once they ordain, they're entering into homelessness and all those relationships are not the same as they were prior to ordaining so in the household life in order to get to enlightenment if you're going to have a life partner you're going to maintain relationships with your children you're going to have a boss co-workers things like this you're going to need to learn how to love without attachment without understanding this and practicing it it will be real difficult for you to get to enlightenment so as you observe that you're struggling and having any difficulties in relationships, don't run away from those. Don't push those away thinking that that's going to solve the problem. Instead, reach out to your teacher, ask for help, get some guidance and learn how to love without attachment. And then this can be one of the most fulfilling and rewarding aspects of life. When I learned how to love without attachment, relationships just blossomed. Prior to that, I always struggled in relationships and had a lot of difficulties navigating relationships and having fulfilling relationships. But once I figured out how to love without attachment, then I'm able to love everybody, including you. I love beings before I even meet them. That if I'm just walking down the street and I see a child or I see a animal or I see a human being, an adult, a woman, a man. If I see a homeless person, if I see a person who's yelling and hollering at their child. As I shared with you guys when I was on travel and there was a father who smacked his son really hard across the face out in public amongst a lot of other people. I loved that man. I didn't agree with his actions. I didn't agree with how he treated his son. I wouldn't have treated my son that way but I still love this man. I still had an interest in seeing him be well and seeing him be peaceful. So you can cultivate this and practice this with people around you and you can experience loving all beings without having any expectations of them and having this genuine interest in seeing them be well and peaceful And before you even meet people, you can love people and just be interested in seeing them be well without any expectation of anything from them whatsoever. And when you can get to this point in your relationships where you don't want anything from people, you can have these very fulfilling relationships that really blossom. So thank you all for joining for today's class. The next class that we're going to have next Sunday is chapter 16, which is titled, dissolving the ego, ego serves no purpose. This is where I'm gonna help you deeply understand the fetter of personal existence view and the fetter of conceit. These are two important fetters to eliminate, two important pollutions of mind to eliminate. This is where you learn the universal truth of non-self much more deeply. We're going to dive into that really, really deeply. And I'm going to help you understand how to dissolve the conceit and how to eliminate that arrogance and pride, the measuring and comparing, looking down on people or looking up to people. I'm going to help you learn how to get rid of that from the mind, because as long as these fetters are in the mind, as long as this ego is in there, it's going to hinder you from having loving kind relationships where you have this genuine interest in seeing others be well as long as there's this personal existence view where you have certain self-image and certain self-identity that you're trying to project in the world or you have this arrogance or this conceit or this judging others you're going to be hindered to practice true love so you're going to need to eliminate personal existence view and conceit so that your love can shine through with other beings so that you're not taking this position of arrogance or pride or conceit with others. So by dissolving the ego, it'll actually allow the love to come through and you'll be able to have these more fulfilling relationships that'll truly blossom. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation in class together. I'll guide you guys in class, and then you guys can ask any and all questions that you like. It's really open to any questions that you like. So if you've read this chapter or you're going to read this chapter between now and Wednesday, and maybe now that you've taken this class, maybe you watched the previous class as well, there might be some more questions that you have about true love, and you can ask those on Wednesday, or you can ask in a private personal guidance session as well. So I just like to make sure you guys know that I'm here to support you, encourage you, help you along this path, and I have no expectations of you whatsoever. I love you as you are. I am interested in seeing you be well, interested in seeing you be peaceful, and whatever I can do to help you accomplish this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, I'm here to do that. So just feel free to reach out for support, and I'm here to help you. So we'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.